for Volume 2 of our discussion of the epic and ambitious Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think that sort of speaks for itself, but you should go in as usual expecting spoilers for the movies that we discuss, as well as the Marvel Universe and comic books in general. And you should expect some coarse language, especially from me, because I'm just not a grown-up person. You can send your feedback and complaints to rankingreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website is rankingreview.ca because I'm up here in Canada. And if you like this podcast, I'm guessing you would enjoy the Terror Table podcast or Publets, a gothic horror podcast. Welcome to Riverdale and the Shelf Shedding Movie Show, hosted by a friend of the podcast, Jason Dubray. These are all fine podcasts. They're all friends of mine and friends of the show. Lend them your ears. And with that out of the way, let's talk about some super. Sky Brandon is back for volume two of our discussion of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We're going to talk about six more interconnected comic book films. Thank you so much for being here under these strange circumstances. My, my pleasure. This is the first time I've had to do one like this. It's always been uh, nice to sit and drink your coffee and <laughs> enjoy your company while we do this. Well, we must uh, be socially... I have to drink my own coffee in my own basement and yeah. We have to keep socially distanced, and uh, when you're around, I just can't resist touching you. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's for it's the best for the best. This is safer for both of us. Um, I was talking to you right before we pressed record last time. We came up with the whole like Coulson saga for the first six movies, the arc that led us to the first Avengers movie. And I was trying to find some sort of cohesive theme about this arc of six that I could connect to. And the closest thing I came to is this sort of PTSD thing. Um, almost all of them, maybe with the exception of Ant-Man, the uh, main characters dealing with a loss or dealing with some sort of tragedy in their backstory. And they're sort of licking their wounds of it. But that's not as fun as the Coulson saga. <laughs> no, that one was so succinct. Like it was. It was like all six movies had him. Yeah. <laughs> Alas, but I think uh, generally speaking, there's like I don't know about you. I don't want to jump to the end too. I found it easier to make my list of six with with this batch, 
and although I would dare say there's some stronger films in this batch than the first six. There's also that some, makes any sense. Yeah, there's some other, yeah, there's some duds. There's not duds. Duds is too strong. I like all six again. I would argue that there's some peaks and valleys in this. Yeah. I think at this point, obviously, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has established itself. We at least we know what to expect to for the most of the degree uh, out of a Marvel movie. Out of this group of six, the one that's kicking down the new door, the sort of Thor of this group of movies is Guardians of the Galaxy. That's going to yeah. open up a whole other un literal universe of the Marvel canon. Um, and so that has a lot of exposition to get through. And I remember I said on this podcast when they announced that James Gunn was doing it, that I thought, I love James Gunn. I like that property, but they might be going too weird too soon, you know? <laughs> A talking it raccoon. Paid off. It, was a it paid off. off huge. It was like a talking raccoon and a talking tree, and like it was like it was a big leap. You know, I always thought it was bizarre that that George Lucas produced Howard the Duck movie that happened in '89 right. or '88, whatever it was. Not only was it just weird that that movie got made at all, but like that of all the comic book properties that like so few had been mined of all the things that that blossomed that early. Howard the Duck. It was just a really <laughs> strange thing. So I think they're starting to see how many different ingredients they can mix with and what fits and what doesn't in the universe. Um, some of these movies have a good reputation. Some of them have a bad reputation. I don't always yeah. align with what the, quote, fan base says about it. But um, I think that there's a, a good and bad quality to, quote, finding your stride. If you know what you are as a Marvel Cinematic Movie, then I think the impetus is to take maybe some fewer risks, right? Right. Um, and we also sort of start seeing this first phase of Marvel getting a bit of a reputation of uh, not playing well with others. Uh, we talked yeah. about them making some replacements, but there's a heartbreaking story behind Ant-Man, for instance. <laughs> Uh, a really fun movie, but uh, it's still another movie that's haunted by the idea of what might have been if, if Edgar right. Wright... If Edgar Wright, he got a chance to do it. Yeah, yeah. so uh, there's lots of interesting stuff to talk about. Is there anything you wanted to say by way of introduction before we list these off and get into the ranking and reviewing? I think the only thing, I guess maybe I'm tipping my hat a little bit maybe by saying this, but I do find like the first few, and I'd be curious to kind of go back and see like the timeline in terms of which things were in process at what point. Like for me, like Iron Man 3 and, and Thor Dark World, you know, the second one were the first ones that came out. And even just watching them in the order that they were released, you do feel like they're kind of a coda of of the first Avengers movie. And like, maybe they hadn't really started rethinking the game yet. And so like those ones really feel like, um, and maybe why they get some of the negative chatter that they get is that they were still holding on to that first phase a little bit. It's not till the Russos show up with winter soldier that all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, now we're going over here. So that really does feel like a really clear shift to me in terms of where the movies were going. There's a sensation maybe of now what? We got to the Avengers. Okay, but yeah, we, there's maybe a little bit of a plateau. Like, I, I see what you're saying there for sure. Yeah, yeah. So if Iron Man and Thor 2, right, Iron Man 3 and Thor 2, if they were already in the works and like those machines had already started before Avengers kind of 
came out and they kind of realized what, what where they could go next. Right. Just might be like a delayed reaction in terms of the, oh and now that. So I think they've also gotten stronger at predicting on where they're where they can go. Well, I, I'll back your play on that. <laughs> um, well, I think that's all I've got as far as introductions. So I'm just going to list these off unless you have something more you want to say generally. No, no, list away. Uh, we're going to talk about Iron Man 3 from writer-director Shane Black. We're going to talk about Thor The Dark World. I don't have the information in front of me, so the director's name eludes me at the moment. Oh, it was Alan Taylor. I wrote it down. Uh, then we have Captain America Winter Soldier. We have the Guardians of the Galaxy. We have Avengers Age of Ultron and the aforementioned Ant-Man. Thank you so much for being here in these days of the plague, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Ladies. Children. Sheep. Some people call me a terrorist. I consider myself a teacher. Lesson number one. Heroes. There is no such thing. So generally speaking, I like to say that I'm a fan of Shane Black, the screenwriter. He was one of these guys uh, who was the first million dollar baby in the 80s, Lethal Weapon, contributed some of the zingers to the original Predator. Um, I'm a big Kiss Kiss Bang Bang fan and the uh, mm -hmm. much underrated, I think, um, was it The Nice Guys with uh, Russell Crowe? Uh, anyway, uh, uh, he's got a charming vibe to him. But I think he's had sort of mixed benefits as far as when he's being sort of hired out to, to contribute things. His most recent Predator movie being a good example of that. It's very much got that Shane Black vibe, but was that Shane Black vibe right for Predator at the time? It's funny because he, he was in the original Predator and he punched up jokes on the screenplay for that movie, but uh, a lot of people would say that maybe he leaned too hard on the comedy when he did his own Predator movie. Um, so I bring all this up wondering how you feel he handled Iron Man. He typically works in a much more R-rated universe, but he's really good at balancing character and he's really good at unspooling plot. Like, you can count on him on throwing some surprises at you. So here we come to Iron Man 3 dealing with a shell-shocked Tony Stark. And Yeah, no, I thought there was some good twists and turns in it. I think what I like most about just this arc you take the suit away, right? Like, I, I love that part of the storyline. Like, what happens if you take the toys away from the guy and you kind of... And, and knowing, I think they, they pretty much knew at this point whether Robert Downey Jr. was going to be in a bunch more Avengers movie and crossover. Like, I don't think they knew how many movies he was going to pop up in. But I think they always kind of seemed to know that he was going to have his own trilogy and then that was going to be it for the Iron Man franchise. So something nice about returning to that idea of, like, if he was in the cave by himself in the yeah. first one and figured shit out because he's a smart guy and we kind of get an echo of that on this like can you take away all the toys can he still do the job yeah he and has, I, I just really enjoyed that 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 part of the story 
he is once again sort of punished for his hubris and arrogance because when this shadowy figure of the Mandarin shows up in the background making all of these threats, he kind of calls it on. He calls on the Hellfire, and the Hellfire shows up, and he is brought down to a humble point again. And you're right in bringing up how much of the movie is just Tony Stark, you know? Uh, he has yeah. to kind of, like, power up back into being Iron Man, and part of him is not sure if he can or if he wants to. And it's a much more sort of character study, but it still has some surprising little moments of comedy and sort of shocking turns of plot, which you can sort of depend on with this director. I'm still not sure how comfortable a fit he is with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I certainly don't think it, it it's bad, um, but I think I feel the director having a little bit, feeling a little bit held back. And um, you're right, this sort of movie feels like wandering in the aftermath of the Avengers, kind of trying to figure out what the Marvel Cinematic Universe is going to be going forward. And that's all very literally put into Tony Stark's character. So on one hand, I figure that's kind of a clever move. On another hand, it's kind of admitting that they have a, a shitty hand <laughs> in some ways. Right. Yeah, and, and they've got, like, good... I would say peripheral. It's probably not the right word, but you know, like Guy Pierce is usually like a pretty good luck charm. Like the guy just kind of keeps popping up in movies that win Best Picture. Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought you know by the end he was a bit over the top, maybe in terms of some of the the extremist stuff. But you know, it was an it was an injury, and not having read those comics that kind of had that story plot i didn't see that coming when i did finally see this movie because i kind of was away from comics at that point right well i'm not familiar with the iron man story arcs that's being adapted here i know that the mandarin is a troubling figure and that it's it's a racial stereotype <laughs> both like in its origin and its execution in the original book so they weren't going to be authentic to that because well they couldn't be why would they <laughs> so what were they going to do with that was was one of the problems but as far as you're talking about Guy Pierce, I think he announces himself as the villain just because he's Guy Pierce. What is Guy yeah. Pierce doing in this movie? Like, it wasn't that the screenplay showed something or tipped its hand, or you know, they kind of do uh, an Incredibles thing where at first, when we first meet him, he seems like this helpless, pathetic guy who wants to be Tony Stark, and at the end, he wants to destroy Tony Stark, right? Yeah, um, totally. Yeah, yeah. I think that was not a surprise at all. I think if you want to talk about some kind of characters swaps or you know changes like Rebecca Hall's character like her tie I thought the Ben Kingsley stuff was was a nice they kind of flipped that on its head where you think what well if you're gonna get Ben Kingsley obviously yeah. you're gonna, you know but it's not how people anticipated using Ben Kingsley well I know we always take this special air when we talk about Sir Ben Kingsley but <laughs> Sir Ben Kingsley does a lot of shit let's just be real okay he was in the love guru he was in species you know like like he, he's a workman actor in a lot of ways but usually when you hire him he'll give you your money's worth and I like that you know they spend the first act of the movie building him up as this this enemy in the shadows this really sinister figure and we figure you know with this actor he's gonna have some real force to show he's gonna be a real threat and yes I do think that it pays off wonderfully when we finally meet him and he's this pathetic actor he's just being a puppet you know I was hired to play this role I'm, yeah. I don't even know what the actual scheme is you know and he's kind of this pathetic <laughs> figure um, I know a lot of people were, were bummed by that but uh, I don't I don't have a problem with it especially like 
how do you uh, adapt that character from the comic book? Why not make a joke about it? Yeah, well, and by even doing so, and of course, there's no way we could have known this at the time, but now with Shang-Chi coming down the pipeline, like, they're going to use, like, the Ten Rings and the stuff with the Mandarin that kind of has been introduced with the Iron Man stuff, and they're really going to cash in, it sounds like, on that movie. So right. these things, this kind of nebulous Ten Rings thing that we've kind of been seeing right from Iron Man 1 um, is going to pay off down the road, right. which is kind of cool. I also think that this is the Iron Man movie that gave Gwyneth Paltrow something to do. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that seems unkind, but she she has always very much been the supportive, supporting, I love Tony, I support Tony, I'm nervous and scared for Tony, and she gets to level up in this movie a little bit. Um, I didn't yeah, find it absolutely. as a rich payoff as maybe other people would, although I just feel myself increasingly distanced to... Gwyneth Paltrow as an entity in the world so that might I mean that's not a fair thing to, to put on the movie but it's it's a true thing I'm just not as excited about Gwyneth Paltrow as I once was you know but especially yeah. in, in Avengers 2 Pepper got really short shrift she bounced around in that one it's scene totally it's like literally she gets mentioned in like in, in Age of Ultron yeah and that's it yeah and well and even in the Avengers movie that we reviewed in the previous episode she just bounces around in right. short shorts for one scene and then we don't see her basically <laughs> in any kind of important role yeah. So I like what it's trying to do. I, I think that there's some great action sequences. I love that when, when his house gets attacked and seeing that yes. you know iconic building rolling down into the into the ocean and uh, how he sort of survives within the cacophony and the destruction of the rolling explosion while saving the Rebecca Hall and the Gwyneth Paltrow character and you know trying to keep himself alive all within this chaos. It's uh, another one of these interestingly put together action sequences. It reminded me of sort of the the plane save, saving all the people from the plane. It was just a yeah. really good uh, action. It's really sequ- well done. Yeah, it's a really good action sequence. It's really well done, and uh, it's just a very specific Iron Man thing. You know, there's 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 not a lot of other playgrounds in which you would find that scene happening. So uh, there are great payoffs yeah. to the movies. It just seems somehow adjacent. It feels different from your average Marvel well, movie. Yeah, and its framing device is different too, right? Like it's him narrating it back, and I, and I know that the payoff at the end with the end credit scene is like it's he's talking to Banner, right? Like that's the yeah the hidden the thing big at the joke end, if you will. But it does it does put on a different kind of like how did I get here? You know what I mean? Like it's you know even if you're not clocking it as you're watching the movie, you know he's going to come out okay in the end because he's narrating it from a point of view. That he's gone through it already. Yeah, he's looking and back I can't, on it. I can't. Yeah, I can't think of another movie in the in the MCU that's framed that way. Yeah, that's true. But it is very consistent with this writer director. He likes having uh, us get an ear into the thoughts of his characters. He's very much about, you know, he's had Downey Jr. narrate a couple of his movies now. <laughs> so yeah, uh, and yeah. and it's usually worked out for him. Um, I just yeah. think he works better in that sort of grungy, pseudo-sleazy, noir arena than he does maybe in the pretty colorful explosion arena of Marvel. It doesn't necessarily mean he's bad at it. I, I just think you know, it doesn't necessarily lean towards the stuff that he really is good at. I, I think, you know, 
the twist of the Rebecca Hall character in that, you know, we're set up to like her. She is put in a place of danger, so we kind of scratch her off the list of possible suspects. And then she's the bad, like, I think that that would have paid off more in a kiss-kiss-bang-bang environment somehow than this one. But now it just seems like that's the thing that the evil guy does. His, you know, the person that he's had in the behind the scenes putting everything together, once their role is played... He callously kills them, and we move on to the climax of the movie. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't poorly executed, but it was very familiar. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And uh, the the climax of the movie, and I think you're right. I think Guy Pierce kind of overplays his hand. He really does remind me of Syndrome from The Incredibles. That's not. I wasn't just yeah, being well, that, shitty about I that. I put my finger on it, but you're absolutely right. <laughs> But he does get super, super big, especially when he when he gets all super powerful and and is like trying to twist the knife for the Iron Man characters. Like, I should be like outraged. I should be furious, and I should really want you to be vanquished right now. But I'm just thinking this is this is a little this is a little much, and I'm not used to that from Guy Pierce. You know, <laughs> we've talked about him in the past. Bring it back. Bring yeah, it back just just a little bit. Let's just bring it back just a little bit. We talked about Prometheus, that baffling performance that he has in Prometheus. But in that case, I was like, well, they just they just hired the wrong guy. They just should have had an old man play that part. This isn't the problem right, here. I think, in, yeah, in this case, the problem might have actually been Guy Pierce. He might just be uncomfortable in the superhero environment. But, you know, yeah, I, I feel like, like with the Disney Plus stuff and like all the various avenues that they can go now. I find myself thinking, like, I, I hope we see Sam Rockwell. Like, I hope we see Hammer yeah. again from Iron Man 2. I really don't feel the same way about, about the whole Ecstasis. You know, I'm sure we'll see AIM as an entity because it's so entrenched in the comics and stuff. Too, but I don't need to see that character again. Um, the little kid that uh, Tony connects with in this movie, whose name is escaping me right now, apparently grows up to be a bigger deal later on and I'm wondering if that might pay off down the road but again I'm not as familiar with Iron Man lore so I don't know I'm not as familiar with this yeah I think I think a lot of the theories are now because again you know spoilers jumping ahead but like in that great big tracking shot at the end of Endgame where you kind of have all the primary players being collected there for that big big shot you know, they've made a point of pulling that kid out of retirement, if you so to speak, and oh, really? there at right. the, yeah. So I think a lot of because a lot of people are like, who's that guy? It's the kid from uh-huh. Iron Man three, and so I think a lot of the theory is that he's going to be Ironheart, okay. this kind of second coming of Tony that kind of happens in the in the comics, and like yeah, Ironheart I believe is the is the character, and it's genius, and there probably will be a tie in with Young Avengers and whatnot. So who knows if they thought that then. Yeah. Well, they're shooting Iron Man 3, or if that was something they thought of after the fact. But. It's well handled and sort of strangely sweet, but it seems sort of uh, separate from everything else. We'll have these sort of cute bonding scenes between this kid and, and Tony, and then all of a sudden, sudden assassination attempts that feel kind of visceral and real, uh, tonally a little bit adjacent. Um, mm hmm. It works. I feel like I'm nitpicking it. Like, it's not my favorite on this list, but it's not, it's not a bad movie. At all. <laughs> no, I agree. Yeah, 
Yeah, again, I think sometimes I think we feel like we're probably sound like we're coming down hard on some of these movies, but I quite liked it. <laughs> no, it's got a good, fun sense of humor. It's got good payoffs in the action sequence. Like I said, surprise twists in the plot. It's good enough, but like, it just doesn't stand out in in the crowd that much to me. Like, it's not a game changing Marvel movie, you know. And we're going to talk about a couple of those in in this list, yeah. I think. So it might be the totally. company it's in. I like the movie. I don't love it. I guess is where I wash up. Yeah. Is that good enough? Is there anything else you want to say about Iron Man 3? No, I'm good. If we do nothing, they'll destroy us. Ask yourself. What will you sacrifice for what you believe? betray me I will kill you when do we start so Thor the Dark World has a bad reputation around Marvel circles a lot of people consider it kind of the basement of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies so far I don't know that I would definitely take it that far and I think some of the stink around the movie has less to do with the movie itself and more of the fallout around the movie Marvel almost lost its relationship with Natalie Portman over this movie, and uh, an actress was seriously injured on set making the movie. Um, I can't remember the name of the actress, but she was one of the main warriors, the the, the gang that, that hangs out with Thor. She had Probably a, Jamie Alexander yeah, plays Sif. Very serious back injury during uh, an action sequence, and when that happens, it's never a good thing on set. Last minute director replacements, a little bit of chaos going on behind the scenes. So I think for Marvel, that's why Marvel probably thinks it's like the worst movie. <laughs> I'm not sure why the fans do other than this basic premise. I think the lesson that's learned in the dark world, for me anyway, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, Sky, is that <laughs> Thor works better light than dark. Funny Thor or lighter Thor or sort of tonally recognizing the inherent sort of ridiculous of these godlike figures in the world so that we can laugh a little bit. Not so much that it kills the stakes, but that we can have fun with it. That seems to work better in the Thor universe than the heavy, dark, operatic Shakespeare stuff. Now, I know this was all set up by Bernal, but essentially yeah. the first Thor was kind of comedic in tone. There was a big fish out of water thing. His powers being taken away and him having to, you know, earn it all back and relearn his the way about doing business while he's, you know, fumbling around Earth. Kind of funny. The Dark World lives up to its title. And again, I guess the other sort of familiar flaw that we'll talk about in some of these Marvel movies is that they have a great villain that they don't do much with. Christopher Eccleston is a really, really good actor, and I like the idea of these dark elves being really powerful, but once again, like we talked about in the original Thor, they're totally punks compared to these gods. Like, they're just yeah. not matched. So, yeah, there's a lot of problems with Thor Dark World. Is it bad, though? Is it a bad movie? Did I not enjoy my time with it? I couldn't say that. Like, I enjoyed it. In a lot of ways... The haphazard sloppiness of the movie 
gave it uh, a little bit of a more unstable feel than the uh, Iron Man sequel that we just talked about. Yeah. But it made it less predictable feeling. It felt fresher as a result. Now, when all said and done, it maybe didn't give me everything that I wanted out of a Thor movie. But as I was watching the movie, I don't know that I or anyone knew what we wanted out of a Thor movie. As it turns out, I yeah. think what we wanted out of a Thor movie was Thor Ragnarok. But we, didn't know, <laughs> we didn't know that yet. And um, <laughs> Thor was a tricky character. I talked about it with the first movie. He's It's a, just a weird character, even within these, you know, the Hulk is in this universe. But somehow Thor is a stranger character to me. <laughs> <laughs> than Hulk. So you're I, a monster movie guy, though. Larry. I am a monster movie it. guy. It's true, <laughs> but that's somehow easier to get my head around than this is like a god of mythology that's hanging out with these guys and making all of these pop culture references. That's somehow stranger to me. But in yeah. the end of the day, I kind of maybe be, it's the underdog quality of the movie. Maybe it's because everybody picks on it, because it's the runt of the litter, as it were. I think it does have a scrappy charm, and I think it works enough that I will say it's a it's a good movie. I wouldn't give it a thumbs down review. I get what people are talking about, but I had fun with the movie, and and uh, maybe I just lost all credibility as a critic. But I will give it. No, pass. I, I agree uh, because like. I can't. I didn't see this one when it came out in the theaters. Like we we weren't like regular family, you know, eventing Marvel movies yet. Probably in part because of like my daughter's age at the time and and whatnot. So when I finally watched this one, um, with the family, like I had this notion going, it's like, oh, this is the one that's supposed to really suck. Right. And maybe because my expectations were low, I'm like, I really enjoyed it. Like mm-hmm. I really really liked it. Uh, I don't disagree with any of the things that you've pointed out. I think I talked about it a bit with the first Thor movie, too. It's a double-edged sword. Like I think in part, some of these villains don't feel like they add up too much because you've got Loki on running parallels, this kind of anti-hero. So he's kind of filling the, the role of the villain over the whole arc, you know, because we haven't, we get a glimpse of the redemption stuff that's that's to come. But I think for, for me, I think we're kind of, sit back and I think about it like well did we not learn anything from the first movie like it feels like Thor and Odin have switched yeah and so all of a sudden it's like well we need Odin to be in this opposition it's like god they're like didn't we just go through this guys I kind of kept thinking that a couple of times and then at the end like oh Loki's not dead again you know so like that kind of repetitive stuff I think maybe is why it kind of comes down for me, but the whole kind of temporal rift stuff where things are disappearing, like Cat Dennings, I think it's just hilarious. Like Again. I, I love like, her and Portman and Scarlett are playing off each other. There's so much I like. Uh, the stuff about with it. Portman and, and Scarsgard and Cat Denning did seem, did seem very separate from everything else, didn't it? Uh, like, mm-hmm. I mean, necessarily so. They're in two different realms, pretty much entirely for most of the movie, but. Um, I was usually more interested in seeing what was going on in Asgard than I was on Earth in this movie as a rule. Um, But Kat Dennings was, you know, solid with the comic relief. I have to go back to Christopher Eccleston, too. I I feel like they started that, the opening of the movie where we see the flashback to the war and, like, the elves and how they were a serious threat and how evil he was to just unnecessarily really sacrifice all of those other elves so he could hibernate and await his vengeance you know 
yeah. it sets up something that never really pays off for me. I mean, I guess, yeah, he, he ices Thor's mom. I guess, yeah. like, that's a heavy blow. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I never really felt the weight of that character. I never really felt the payoff that they set up at the beginning of the movie for that character. And this is a problem that they have with their villains quite often that I think maybe <laughs> they put all of their eggs in one basket with when they bring in Thanos to try to, to overcompensate with correcting for that. Right. Um, you know, Eccleston, I think, I don't know if he's uncomfortable with the material or not. I mean, he played Doctor Who. He's definitely done the sci-fi thing before, but I, I heard that behind the scenes he was sort of disappointed with how things played out for him his character. Maybe they, you know, the script changed a lot as they were making it. Who knows? Maybe he had more interesting scenes that never ended up happening. But yeah. I, I felt He's that. a bit like Calm was in the first one, too, where you got these really great actors, classically trained, and you pile on heaps and heaps of makeup on them to the point where if you didn't know who they were, you might not actually know who you're watching, which in some regards is great as an actor. Sometimes you want like, oh no, well, let me try playing on like with all this stuff. But, you know, yeah, they do kind of sometimes get, I feel like get lost behind the, the makeup. If that makes sense. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And this one's trickier too because it's not because it's an origin movie. It's not because they had so much time to spend on Thor or Loki or all these other characters. We knew all the other characters. They could have done more with that, and they didn't. Yeah. And yeah, the Thor-Loki dynamic is always going to be charming because those actors are really charming. But the the tires are spinning at least narratively as far as you know how their relationship moves forward. And yes, as you already pointed out, this is the second time Loki dies but doesn't. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah. what I do, um, what I do, like start to clock certain things, like uh, people who work and collaborate over multiple pictures too. Like Brian Tyler did the music on this one. He did it on Iron Man three, and he's coming up and some other stuff too. Like they went to him. And I think they continue to go to him quite often. And I think this is the first time Marcus and McFeely were brought in as the as one of the, the duos to write a script. And they had come off the Chronicles of Narnia films, and they've done every single project that they've ever done in tandem. Like, that's, that's it's not like one of them has gone off to work solo. Like, that's how they come. They're a package deal. Yeah. And what I do love about them, because they go on to have an amazing track record here with, with Winter Soldier, and I guess they were on the first Captain America movie, too, so they are in the system. But there's something about me that just loves this notion. I think I jokingly said it to you before, maybe when we weren't recording, but by the time we get to Endgame, it's like, oh, you know that movie that everyone shat on? Yeah. We're going to make it really important to the plot of Endgame because we're going to need to go back there at this particular moment yeah, in this well, movie that we wrote. That footage of Natalie Portman was actually shot when they were making this movie. The, the stuff that they repurposed for Endgame, which is kind of interesting. It makes you wonder what other, you know, scrap scenes they have out there that could be repurposed in other areas. Yeah. Why no, not? Exactly. Uh, I feel like I've been pointing out some of the bad stuff, so I'll point out some of the stuff I like. I love our first shot of Thor in this movie, <laughs> where he shows up to deal with that rock giant. <laughs> <laughs> Again, you're right in that he's right back to being the arrogant punk shitty Thor <laughs> where like he's entitled he's good looking he's wealthy and like nobody can beat him in a fight and he makes a point of rubbing everybody's fucking face in it <laughs> yeah. but it is kind of charming 
And I do like seeing Loki in a box for a little while. And uh, yes. he, he sort of him acting all tough, but having that veneer stripped away. And he, he is unhappy to be in prison. And he is disappointed that his mom has been murdered by a dark yeah. elf, despite him trying to show that he's super hard. You know, that, that presses his buttons. Yeah. But anything that's accomplished is, I think, a little bit undercut by the whole twist at the end. Uh, going right to the spoilers, like, Loki takes over Asgard <laughs> at the end of this. Yeah. And the great disappointment of that is nothing is going to be done with this. <laughs> like, the idea... No, not until until we get the beginning of... Ragnarok, which is like years down the road before, and we it's a punchline. It. It's a punchline. It's basically the opening act of the the fourth Thor movie that that deals with that. But it, <coughs> excuse me, the reality of the fallout of this is terrible. Because he dethrones Odin, and because he pretends to be king, the realms are unprotected. Evil goes a, a, like on a rampant rage. Thanos gets more of the you know Infinity Stones. Infinity Stones. Like so much shit bad shit happens because of what Loki did here. And it's never properly recognized, I don't think, in any of the Marvel movies. Loki gets a pass, I guess, because, you know, of what happens to him later on in the movies, I guess. But uh, uh, I think that that's interesting, that he is probably second only to Thanos responsible for, you know, the snappening that we're going to get to later on in the show. (laughs) So... Um, maybe they either didn't fully comprehend that or recognize it, or maybe they had a different plan of what Loki was going to do when he was in charge of, you know, yeah, this realm. Yeah, it's always I find it interesting, too. And maybe it, do, and it doesn't feel as much time, right, when you get to go back and rewatch them quite close to each other. and Because I do know, well, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but, like, they ended up releasing Ragnarok before Black Panther, where originally Black Panther was going to go before Ragnarok. So you could get that end scene in Ragnarok where all of a sudden that big ship is kind of coming down on them, and that goes right into the beginning of Infinity War. Right. But then sometimes, in true comic book fashion, sometimes you're reading a story, and it's like, oh, you want to see how this ties in? Well, then you have to go get Fantastic Four. Crossover. 28. Yeah. Crossover stuff. So sometimes, even though these movies aren't released in an order, you kind of have to... But I still sometimes wonder, like, where they were at in the process sometimes of, like, general map out. Maybe you're right, like, that they didn't really know where they were. I think maybe generally they knew where their end game was, but some of the specifics weren't worked out yet. And then as a result, you look back, it's like, man, Ruby was sitting on that throne for a long time. Yeah. And if you're going to lay track, if you're going to waste precious plot time in your movie laying track... It should have a purpose. It should have. Right. There should be somewhere you're going with that. It shouldn't be a vague idea of something that we'll deal with down the line. Um, I'm not saying that's what it is, but I'm saying that at times that's what it felt like. Right. But yeah. all in all, I did have fun watching this movie. I, I keep going back to it. I say a bunch of shitty things, but then I said I have a smile on my face. Yeah. And uh, well, I would tell, like you know, like Freda, like you know, yes, like it's a huge loss. That that whole funeral sequence I actually found quite moving and, and well shot. And, Fight sequences are are fun and enjoyable. I like his merry band of, you know, warrior buddies enough that I kind of wish they'd done more with them going forward, personally. Um, It it seemed like they could have this whole sort of spin-off Lord of the Rings-ish fantasy adventure series going on in this world, right? But no, no, they're just pawns that can be wiped off the board, you know, so whatever. (laughs) 
Um, but I'm not as I'm not as hard on Thor: The Dark World while acknowledging yes, there are problems. Yeah. Good enough. Good enough. Most of the intelligence community doesn't believe he exists. The ones that do call him the Winter Soldier. He's a ghost. You'll never find him. I joined S.H.I.E.L.D. to protect people. Captain, to build a better world, Sometimes means tearing the old one down. And that makes enemies. Step. People are gonna die. I can't let that happen. Captain America needs my help. When do we start? We just did. All right, let's talk about Winter Soldier. Uh, we, when we talked about the first Captain America movie, the first Avenger, I said he was never my favorite brand of superhero a he's not as visually dynamic or interesting he doesn't wolf out into a monster he's he's a super soldier and he wears the american flag and he's very patriotic <clears throat> and i get why that wouldn't appeal to me as a young canadian boy in, in small town alberta right i didn't hate captain america i was just kind of he was just never one of my favorites and i couldn't get excited about captain america as you know a member of the avengers i like the avengers movies but it was just always the one that i was least excited about until Winter Soldier. <laughs> Winter Soldier completely reinvented my thought on Captain America. What a Captain America movie could be. What a Marvel movie could be. How adult they could go and still make it entertaining for the kids. Because even though it feels a lot of times like a 70s spy thriller. Aided in part with the presence of Robert Redford. But yeah. it still has that superhero fun action stuff. In fact... One of the things that it unquestionably does, one of the many things that it unquestionably does better than the first Captain America movie is showing Captain America in action. Like, we got yes. montages of moments of Captain America kicking ass in the first movie, and we got him sort of leveling up from a weakling into a super soldier. In this movie, he is formidable. He is one of the Avengers. He's on level with everyone else. He's not just a enhanced human being. He is a superhero. And I really felt it and believed it for the first time in this movie, right away, with the opening sequence on the boat and the attack on the, and everything, like... Right away, I was like, "Oh, this is we've 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 next leveled everything here." <laughs> like, and um, they got me right away in the first few minutes of the movie, and they never let go of me. And honestly, I think this is a much more significant and better movie than the Avengers movie we're going to talk about. And I think, in a lot of ways, more significant shit goes down <laughs> in this movie yeah. than goes down in the Avengers movie. Much like the third Captain America movie. These function almost as many Avengers movies as much as they do Captain America films. Now, maybe that's taking away from the brand of Captain America, but all of a sudden I went from being indifferent to Captain America to being actively a fan. So that's an accomplishment. 
And it's an accomplishment from a couple of guys who got noticed because they did some great episodes of Community. Community, yeah, I know. It's like, what? And now they're just oh, running the world on these yeah. things. So uh, it sounds like I'm gushing about Winter Soldier because I am fucking gushing about Winter Soldier. It's a complex story to describe, but we find out essentially that Bucky Barnes has survived. He's basically become a, a Nazi instrument assassin and well he's not the not nazis the she um oh my god (laughs) hydra hydra the hydra Hydra, but there does come from you know red skull yeah but then also he's kind of got these russian ties and stuff like that too right so it's like what hydra's everywhere i guess i just blanked on the name hydra for some reason there for a second but i like that that ties in not just to his past but to tony stark's past we also find out the Winter Soldier, on top of being Captain America's best friend, pulled the trigger on Tony Stark's parents. Yeah. <laughs> so the dramatic stakes are huge. S.H.I.E.L.D. as an entity largely falls <laughs> in this yep. movie. It looks like we're losing Samuel L. Jackson for a moment. There's an intense action sequence in broad daylight in a city street. Like... The movie is just relentlessly entertaining, and um, much like, unlike the previous reviews where I feel like I'm going to focus on the negatives, I'm having a hard time finding any negatives to focus on here, so help me yeah, out. I'm, I'm the same way, too. No, I, I don't think I'm going to help you in that regard, because I'm kind of, I'm of the same way. Like, you know, again, you got Marcus McFeely, right, the script, the Russos, you know, the Russos, the, the work that they've done on the Captain America movies basically got them the double bill of Infinity War Endgame because they're juggling so many, like every time they did a movie, it's like, here's some more characters for you to deal with. They do a really good job. Like, I I think I saw an interview or something like that. Maybe it was even an extra on the, on the Blu-ray. I can't remember, but like that whole elevator suite sequence is the first thing they shot. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. Like, like, I'm like, what? Why would you start there? But it's probably something to do with who's available on what days and all that. Well, stuff, but like, to describe that again, but this they're is... laying the groundwork with, um, you know, something as simple as on your left, that interaction with Sam Wilson, and of course becomes Falcon, like that stuff. You know, they keep coming back to these lines that then people who watch all the movies and know them all end up being these quick emotional hooks later on down the line. Gary Shandling, right? We're pulling him from the Iron Man, yeah, stuff like you know, we're tying the universe together they, they get our first mention of dr strange i don't even know if they knew what they were doing with it but they, they mentioned stephen strange to kind of start introducing he's an entity in the, the world yeah yeah uh, i think to, to just having talk. someone like robert redford and, and playing the espionage angle too i think makes black widow a stronger character in this movie because that's her world yeah she seems a bit more her importance seems to be amplified in a movie like this and she plays the game a little more ruthlessly when she knows that there's spies involved because the, like, there's no time for quipping. Like, it's life or death. You talked about the uh, elevator sequence. I thought that was a great um, sequence in of itself, too, because we hadn't seen a contained action scene like that. And the movie gives us both. They give us the big like shootout car chase explosion on the street sequence. But Captain America is in an elevator with, uh, what is it, six guys? 
Oh, it's more than that. And Actually, by so, the time, yeah. It's, and yeah. he's like, he realizes that he's not, he's in a hornet's nest and uh, they're not friendly to him and they're not taking him anywhere friendly. And he has to deal with it. And he does very effectively. <laughs> but we just hadn't seen that scene like that before. Uh, they did a similar thing in one of the Die Hard movies where John McClane has a shootout in an elevator. And I, I also like that. That was a much more violent version of it. But it's a different kind of action sequence. And it's a, a different kind of energy because there's no margin for error, error at all. And, um, no, yeah. I, I really like that specific moment as well. It was another one of those things where, like, yeah, Captain America, I get it. I get it now. <laughs> yeah. No, and they quite quickly, you know, like, he becomes, he's the outsider. Like, this is interesting that they took him there, like, in the second movie. <laughs> like, all of a sudden, he's the one being chased, right? And, you know, and you got people on the inside who've infiltrated and over a long period of time, as we come to find out. So I remember also, too, like the whole thing about surveillance and people being watched and them using that information. And I've seen in multiple interviews with Feige. It's kind of, of course, the mastermind of the whole thing from a production standpoint. And some are like, well, how did you know, like in terms of snow, you know, Snowden and all that stuff? Because the timing of it is like, we didn't. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Fate. It's happened again and again where they just kind of like, this is kind of interesting. And they kind of start going down this road and then while they're making the movie something globally happens that just makes it relevant makes them look like they were geniuses well same thing with yeah. the casting of chris pratt when we talk about guardians of the galaxy when they cast chris pratt he was not chris pratt <laughs> right so yeah. uh they 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 part of this is luck but of this next era of movies that we've gone to, like clearly this is the strongest of the three movies that we've talked about so far. You can like, like again, I rack my brains to think of like things to be critical about. You'd think that with all of this espionage and all of this backstories that we're going into that you would lose the younger audience. But I watched this with my kids and they were into it. I mean, yeah. I didn't give them a questionnaire afterwards and say how it rated against the other ones. I'm sure... Like, Tristan would always say that the Avengers was his favorite because that's where Hulk smashes Loki into the floor right, right to the end. <laughs> but, um, I, no, just... I, think it, I think it works really well as a bridge in that it takes pieces from the first Captain America movie. Like, we get to see Peggy, you know, and, and we get Zola being brought as this kind of computer consciousness element. So, like, there, there are things that from the first movie doesn't mean, like, it's a clean stars like we're bringing elements from the first one yeah and setting the table for what's to come and and, they, like, and i think i talked about it last time too that relationship between steve and bucky i just i think is really endlessly fascinating when you have a personal connection um crisis a personal thing that's going on amidst the bigger picture thing and like and, you know okay well if i serve one am i hurting the other and can i do both at the same time well, Captain yeah, America I, I himself, a he's a perfect person to be in the center of all this because, like, one of his defining characteristics, I guess, is that he's incorruptible. In the Marvel Universe, he's like Superman. If he ever did a thing where he was suddenly a double agent for Hydra, the fans would revolt. He is just, you know, altruism, yeah. pure, good dude. So he's the one dependable entity that S.H.I.E.L.D. has there. Like, they don't know any, they don't know if they can trust anybody. But they know they can trust Captain America. And that's well situated. And to have the personal investment of Bucky on top of that, that's, yeah. you know, makes it much more potent. 
And the comic book boy in me would say, man, what would a fight between Captain America and Tony Stark look like? And guess what? We'll get to see that later on down the line. What did you feel yeah. about Robert Redford? Do you figure he he fit in this comfortably? <laughs> it's a, it stands out a little bit, but you know, like my daughter, you know, for her, she she it didn't stand out for her because she doesn't have a reference for Redford in all these other movies, right? He's just some old guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she kind of like oh, but like it's a really good scene in terms of getting to see Redford play the bad guy, because it, it doesn't happen often. Nope. But just that like that late-night scene when Bucky's coming to his house and they're sitting down and having a drink and the maid comes back in. And, oh, God, I wish he didn't. That was and just pulls the trigger. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay, now I have a clear picture of who this guy is. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of nice seeing Redford doing, uh, doing that side of things. Well, and it's hard not to sort of think of him as some kind of a mascot for 70s espionage for, or, or like that kind of spy thriller that was the obviously there's all the president men but what's the famous spy one where his entire office gets wiped out uh day of the condor the three days of the yeah, condor yeah. or whatever yeah. he he yeah. he like if you are literate of film history he kind of represents that and he kind of gives that this movie that kind of vibe just by his very presence if you if you want him to but I wonder if it wasn't Robert Redford, how essential that character would have ended up being as the things all turned out. It, I, 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 this is me floundering to find something to be critical about. I don't think he's bad in the movie. Like, I don't think he's bad in the movie. Like, I, I like Robert Redford, but like, it just doesn't seem as essential as anything else that's going on. He sh- he shows up. He's a friend of you know uh, Sam Jackson's character, and then we find out that he's bad, and then he gets shot. But Compared to everything else going on in the movie, I don't know. It's less. It's, yeah, it's, it's and, less and interesting. All, like, these movies kind of have a stretch here now coming up too, like with Guardians with Glenn Close. Like sometimes it does feel like like here's a way for us to get like a really well respected actor who won their Oscars or came to the height of their career in the '70s and '80s, and now we're gonna, you know. I can't help but feel like it's them as filmmakers being film nerds trying to like <laughs> bring people into the fold. Like, Oh my God, we got Glenn close. Like, Oh my God, we got Robert Redford. Like, you know, by the time they're all done, it's going to like, who wasn't in a Marvel movie? That's what I was going to say. Very few people in Hollywood will end up being untouched by it. Also, I got to give props to the Russo brothers because it was the paintball episodes from community that got them noticed apparently. And those movie, those episodes are very much, sort of tributes to Hollywood, the different styles. One time they do a sort of a Western theme, they do kind of a Star Wars theme, and they sort of play with classic, you know, um, Asian archetypes of the action thing. But they showed an ability to play in all of those different genres and pay homage to them. What's interesting about this is that this is not them paying homage to them or, or, or emulating it. This is them just doing it. And uh, yeah. that's a different thing. It's, there's, there's a different thing between sort of tipping your hat to what an action movie, you know, is, is and just making a pure action movie. And the fact that yeah. they can do both, <laughs> me impressed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this set a high bar. It set a high bar for Marvel. And, um, wow, I don't know. I don't know. The only thing they could do was maybe follow it up with Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> It did. It did. It does feel like it's the big turning point in terms of 
not that they weren't credible before. I just like all of a sudden it's like, man, yeah. it, it, it took a step up. We talked about in the first episode, Scorsese sort of screamed that it's not cinema. I would argue that this is cinema to me. This is not an yeah. easy movie to make. It's a fairly complex, complicated story. We take it seriously, but there is ridiculous elements to it. It does set things up for a, a long-term conflict between two of our major characters, but it's succinct and, and contained enough in itself that we didn't feel like it's open-ended. Like, yeah. the movie just wall-to-wall -wall works for me. Yeah, I agree. Star-Lord, man. Legendary outlaw. Forget it. We arrested these five on Xandar. Check out the rap sheets. Drax, a.k.a. the Destroyer. Since his wife and family were killed, he's been on a rampage across the galaxy in his search for vengeance. Gamora, soldier, assassin, wanted on over a dozen counts of murder. Rocket, wanted on over 50 charges of vehicular theft and escape from lockup. What the hell? Root, has been traveling recently as Rocket's personal houseplant slash muscle. Peter Jason Quill. He's also known as Star-Lord. Who calls him that? Himself, mostly. He's wanted largely on charges of minor assault, public intoxication, and fraud. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't know how this machine worked. Hey, hey, hey. That's mine. You son of a... Hey! Take those headphones off right now! They call themselves the Guardians of the Galaxy. What a bunch of a-holes. I like the idea of Guardians of the Galaxy. I just was worried that it was going to be too strange a door to kick down too soon in the Marvel Universe. Coming off the heels of the enormous success, as far as I'm concerned, of Winter Soldier, this is a strange shift, both tonally, in the stories, in the characters, in the world. The only real thing that it has in common with Winter Soldier is that wall-to-wall -wall, everything fucking works in it <laughs> like everything works in it stuff that shouldn't work in it even the most familiar parts of the movie that i recognize as being manipulative utterly right. work still, in it <laughs> just like, like thank you for spoon feeding me this delicious ice cream <laughs> like that's like the the i think the key was james gunn that script and the tone I mean, obviously getting the right people to play the parts is good, but right away when we see Chris Pratt dancing around, picking up this, this alien rat creature and singing into it like a microphone and then casually tossing it away, showing us this amazing world, but showing us a character who doesn't give a shit about this amazing world. No, nothing impresses this character. He's way more into his jam, into his tunes, right? Yeah. And um, right away I'm like, oh, I like this. And that feeling... <laughs> never left <laughs> for the whole movie um, I'm also impressed with James Gunn as a director I, mean, I know him more from sort of his more 
aggressive features, shall we say, like Slither and Super, where he kind of seems to enjoy fucking with your expectations a little bit. In this one, like, the movie gives you what you want and in a lot of ways what you expect, but the energy and joy in it is great, and he has you right away. The movie starts with an incredibly sad scene of this woman yeah. wanting to say goodbye to her son and her son not wanting to deal with it and running away, and it's right away, like, potently dramatic. We don't know any of these people, but right away, it's like, did it get dusty in the theater? I wrote, what the hell is happening? <laughs> well, you know, for me, like, Guardians of the Galaxy, not this iteration, but in the 90s, that was one of the titles I collected, because yeah. it, it came out, like, that best. So when I heard they were making a Guardians of the Galaxy movie, I was like, that's interesting, because that's supposed to be, like, 31st century. Yeah. Because like that's down the road, right? And what's so great about that title is you kind of see how they took things from the contemporary Marvel and how they kind of then evolved over the, you know, the centuries into. It's like the first six issues of that run was the one character trying to find uh, Captain America's shield, like it was a relic. Yeah. Well, so they had all these ties. I think and the original so pitch those, was like Star Trek. That this had been bad. Uh, I think the original pitch was like Star Trek meets superhero. Like, if we had a world like Star Trek, but instead of people, we still have these superheroes, right? <laughs> so, yeah. what are superheroes doing in this sci-fi environment is basically the yeah. question and the, the pitch of the Guardians of the Galaxy. But it's also lighter, goofier, and because they're in an alien world, everything's on the table. Like I said, we have a talking tree, and we yeah. have a talking raccoon, and we have, like, uh, there's nothing... There's, galaxies to explore all of a sudden we're not contained in earth we're not contained what, in asgard what, yeah but what james gunn did in terms of writing the screenplay and then obviously in the execution too is that well okay two things because it's such a big turn for everything that came before it although we had had glimpses of thanos um because it's outside the realm and it's cosmic you can have a completely different kind of tone because it is so different just given the circumstances of the story. It's already different. But then he made it relatable by because you've got this character who's originally from Earth who loves music of his childhood and you have these signposts of contemporary music that people know and recognize that you can put in yeah. to help you know, kind of mold the arc of where the characters are at. He situates Which, us. Pays off. Yeah, he situates us in a familiar world. They did a similar thing in the not so great Will Smith version of iRobot, in that the, right. the Will Smith character, although it's set in the future, is obsessed with the past. He's obsessed with late '90s, early 2000s culture, so that you know the people who are watching the movie can relate to him if they relate to nothing else. And yes, I right. agree. That's what they're using Chris Pratt for, but they couldn't have found a better actor to deliver that for us. I don't think, <laughs> like it. You never maybe would have guessed him as an action hero from his sort of sitcom background, but like, you know, once he shed a few pounds and got, showed off his chiseled jaw and everything like that. Uh, but for me, it's less it's less him punching people and more the attitude, the vibe, the energy of that character. He This is a guy whose life has been utterly ruined by, you know, terrible circumstances on one hand, but on another hand, his life is completely extraordinary. He, he's he's privy to entire worlds that most people don't even understand exist. And he sort of lives in this strange, goofy limbo in between. And that nothing is exactly real to him, but 
you know, he's still a person with feelings and emotions and needs. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. In this movie especially, Star-Lord is just need. He needs to be loved. He needs to be recognized. He needs a family. He needs need, 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 need. Because all he's had until this point is Michael Rooker. Yeah. The space bounty hunter. Yondu. Yeah. Yondu, who was supposed to deliver him to his dad, but instead kept him and continually reminds him what a great favor he's done to him by doing this and how they were going to eat him, but they didn't. Blah, 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 blah. Do you know, honestly, this is, this is a really controversial opinion because I know people love Yondu and I love Michael Rooker. He is hands down my least favorite character in this movie. Right. Hands down, my least favorite character in this movie. And, like, I like Michael Rooker, and I know James Gunn likes him, too. He specifically wanted to put him in this movie. And I like that in the second Guardians of the Galaxy movie, I feel they do a lot of course correction on Yondu. Yeah. But in this character, like, I know we're not supposed to like him, but I hate him. Like, there's no heart to him at all. I hate his (laughs) cowardly flying knife weapon. I hate his attitude. I hate, like, there's no, I don't see the warmth in his character. I think that something got lost in the translation there for me. But the rest of the movie is so much fun and so funny. And the fact that he gets, you know, defeated or or, or tricked by Star-Lord at the end of the movie pays off. Because I don't like him so much. The problem is going forward, they're going to move forward with this series assuming we really like Yondu. And I, for one, don't. I just always thought of him as a terrible villain. Right. Well, well, we can talk about it when we come back around to the next batch when we hit volume two. Yeah. Then also, but in terms of like how that payoff for you was then too, I'd be curious to talk about it, that incident if it worked for you, maybe disliking him as much as you did. Yeah. Um, and for me, like he's such a different incarnation of the Yondu that was in the comics. Like he is one of those characters that does exist in the in the one. Although very different, like he's got the same look, like the blue yeah. skin and the flying arrow that he controls by whistling, and and then volume two, right, we get the high fin, which is very similar to the, the character in the comics. But he's not that kind of. He's more like some kind of Zen Buddhist guy who prays, right? Yeah. He's so different than that. I was like, what the? Hell? Yeah, they sort of combined him with a Han Solo-ish figure, but they forgot the charm a little bit. <laughs> I think yeah. a little bit. Although I do love me some Michael Rooker. I would never say anything bad about Michael Rooker because he beat me up. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I also think, and you're more familiar with the comic book than I, um, I know that all these characters existed in the comic book in different variations, but I'm not sure that this particular crew of the Guardians of the Galaxy ever existed. One of the interesting things about the book is there was many incarnations of it and crew members would come and leave, either leave or get killed off or, or, or be replaced, or they would just reinvent the book and have a new cast of characters. As they are well, so they kind of, yeah, when they, my understanding is it was around, oh, geez, I want to say 2008. Maybe that's even too late. Maybe it was a bit before then. This in, this version of the Guardians was introduced in the comics. Okay, so they did they did have a map then. Yeah, and 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 if, and if I'm not mistaken, it was um, something similar to like one of the characters from the the version that I collected, because there's time travel that's happened over the like that's how they got introduced like in the late '60s, early '70s before they had their own run as a title. They were introduced through I can't remember which comic if it was a Marvel two and one or some kind of Avengers thing. They came from the future and right. to so warn on, so us forth. about something or other, right? 
So there's another time travel thing that was introduced, and they kind of used it. He said, oh, I'm from the Guardians of the Galaxy. I think it's Rocket or something. Oh, that's a good name. And then they take on the mantle. So right. that's how they kind of you know, introduce them as the new Guardians of the Galaxy in this kind of contemporary timeline. Um, so, yeah, like the, and it, it really kind of shook up. And that kind of came on. A lot of characters were in, kind of reintroduced. Like one that I followed a lot was Nova. And he's tied in with Drax, and Drax's rebirth story, which then led into Guardians, and like Ronan the Accuser, who of course is the villain in Guardians, and he pays. So it's interesting to see what they've already chose from that kind of mid 2000s reintroduction of the characters and stuff that they can still use if they want. Yeah, like they've got a they've got a big palette to use, and it's actually fairly recent that that that, that title's in. been around. Because I was, they, they, it was Guardians in the late '80s. I do remember reading Guardians of the Galaxy as like a title. It came like it, they got, they finally got to know when it was like ninety ninety one. Oh, was it? Because okay. yeah. I like it was right at the tail end of when I was seriously collecting comics. But I do remember they did exist, and I did read some of it. But it's yeah. it, it's it's interesting because not until Doctor Strange do they do this again, where they kick down another like entire universe. Doctor Strange will give us the world of supernatural this is giving us the world of science fiction within the marvel universe yeah and that's what you brought up the de batista character yeah i have a personal problem i guess because i i usually i don't get excited about wrestler turned actors in movies famously in my childhood that's never really been a good thing a lot of times i get these like Steroid. No, yeah, these steroid <laughs> victims who can barely talk and like it just almost never paid off. For every rock, you know, there was like three or four just terrible misfires. Dave Bautista, man, has made me a believer. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's a, good, I, a lot it's of a it was the so script. Well the script did a lot of the work for him, but you need to have a good performer there. Full head to toe, you know, prosthetics on his body. And he's tough and funny, like yep. it's it, it, like he's really doing almost a triple threat. I mean, short of singing and dancing, I don't know what more he could have done to impress me in this movie. And uh, here's a veil compliment for Vin Diesel. Yes, <laughs> two of my favorite Vin Diesel performances ever, ever, E V E R ever, is Groot and the Iron Giant. Keep your right. bald face <laughs> off of my fucking movie screen. <laughs> Stop pretending you're this fucking sexy, hard-ass action star and just voice me some cartoons because that always gives me more. I love the Iron Giant and I love Groot. And uh, other than that, Vin Diesel largely has left me cold, I have to admit. <laughs> So he'd like his voice, is what you think. I guess. He can read me a bedtime story. He can soothe me to sleep. But I'm, I've never been able to get excited about the Fast and the Furious or, yeah. or Riddick or any of that shit. I don't know why. I was just He's never done it for me. But uh, I love me Groot. My son Tristan was traumatized by this movie when we saw it in the theater. Because he fell in love with Groot. And of course Groot makes this epic sacrificial move at the end. And he was just so upset. And we were trying to show him. Like when I got the Blu-ray, I was like... Look, there's a little baby Groot dancing. He's like, I don't, don't want to fucking watch this. I don't want to look at that movie. I don't like that movie. That movie's stupid. <laughs> He's just so <laughs> upset by it. But, I mean, the movie worked for a single-digit age category kid, you know, and it worked for me. And yeah. 
they use the fun energy, the like bouncy energy of the movie is sort of the energy which wins the day in the movie. Like when they have that big face off and Chris Pratt starts doing his little dance off. Yeah. He starts doing the dance off and this, this hard ass destroyer character is looking at him just utterly like contemptible. (laughs) It it goes back to like that, the hilarious Flash Gordon movie from the eighties with Max von Sydow being so furious that this moron is defeating him. (laughs) Fun wins the day in Guardians of the Galaxy as much as heroism and everything else. Yeah. This is the one that that, that won uh, my wife over too. Like when we, she hadn't seen it because like I, uh, our mutual friend Josh, Joshua Bodry and and I and another fellow actor, Robbie Towns, we went and saw it in the movie theater when it came out because we were doing Shakespeare and Saskatchewan at the time, and and so Christy hadn't seen it. But when I got picked this up on Blu-ray and played it for her, like from that opening sequence that you talked about earlier, like she's like, oh, I'm gonna love it. Like from that point on. <laughs> Yeah, you know, she's like, okay, I'm in the Marvel movies now because I want to see how this all ties together and how this all ends, this storyline specifically. Uh, we haven't mentioned Zoe Saldana. She's great. I gotta say, she's really great, and it's one of those weird things where, like, the green makeup and purple hair kind of really works for her. For me. <laughs> like, oh, she's wondering, yeah. <laughs> like, why am I always getting makeup put on? I will go on the record Girl, now. She- yeah. Oh, sorry. I'll go on the record now as saying that this movie is going to be better for Zoe Saldana's career, long term and going forward, than anything that she does in the Avatar movies. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would love I would, to be proved wrong agree. by the Avatar sequels, but I, I just not anticipating being proven wrong by the Avatar sequels. <laughs> um, the other, the most interesting thing about Zoe Saldana's character, because she has very much the love interest in this, in this one, is watching this movie knowing where they're going to go with Zoe Saldana's character and the relationship between her and Chris Pratt almost makes her more interesting in the movie in retrospect. Yeah. <laughs> like, just by itself in this movie, yeah, she's the tough warrior love interest. And she does have the conflict because her daddy is, well, a bad dude, <laughs> shall we say. But most of the stuff that she's got to do will come later on. If there's a character that maybe gets a little bit of the backseat in this movie, maybe it's hers, but... For the most part, yeah, there's, so bit, yeah, there's so much I, going on. There's so much going on. The thing it did for me, too, is someone who kind of was collecting some comics, not a lot, but collecting comics at the time of when, you know, the Infinity storyline came out in the comics. Like, as soon as Thanos showed up, like, you know, and it's Josh Brolin, you know, they managed to rope him into that part with the promise of it. Trust us, it's going to pay off down the road. Yeah. And like when did. I saw that on the screen, I'm like, oh, I know exactly where we're going now. Like it, it's the, kind of like the first time where they really, you know, they started talking about Infinity Stones specifically in yeah. this movie. Like in the other ones, you kind of had the cosmic cube that they're kind of dovetailing it into one of the stones. And we find out Thor Dark World, we've got one of the stones, although they hadn't really named it yet. Right. Um but now we've got someone like, this is an Infinity Stone. We've got the Collector. We've got Benicio Del Toro showing up in this world. And we put a name on it now. It's like, okay. We've now set the table for the next half of what's coming. They tip their hand at least to the hardcore fans that, yeah, yeah, the Infinity Wars are on their way. Get ready. Yeah. But they didn't spend half of the movie doing it. 
Uh, no. Benicio Del Toro has a weird history in, in, in science fiction movies for me. Like, yeah, he's in the movie, and it's kind of an interesting scene of itself, but I'm not sure, like... the. The Collector's a bigger entity in the comic books than he ever is in this particular movie. It's kind of cool for the comic fan to see the Collector, but as an entity in the movie, it's not such a big deal. Much the same way... the Duck. <laughs> yeah. Well, but in that Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi or whatever, he's in that movie as well, and it's much the yeah. same thing. Like, it's nice to see him. He's got a couple of good lines, but when all is said and done, it just wasn't essential to the movie. <laughs> Yeah. But even the inessential scenes in this movie are a lot of fun, and that's enough for me to revisit it. I think this is one of the Marvel movies that, like the Avengers, the first Avengers movie, that will probably get the most rewatches out of me. Yeah, it's it's a real crowd pleaser. It's the end. The end of the path I started us on. Nothing lasts forever. Remember last episode of Marvel, how I gushed about uh, the Avengers movie and how I gushed about Joss Whedon's ability to balance character and how his TV background really helped him in this. And I just, I just was completely satisfied with that Avengers movie. Maybe it was because it was unfortunate that it had to follow, you know, Winter Soldier and Guardians of the Galaxy. But Guardians I and the expectations of the first Avengers. Yeah. But I can't really fully articulate how disappointing I found this movie. <laughs> like, I I was kind of shocked when I watched it at how much of it didn't work. And unfortunately, the big problem with Age of Ultron, for me, is Ultron. <laughs> and that's that's a big problem if your movie's called Age of Ultron. I, I can't decide <laughs> if it was rushed, if they maybe needed to spend a few movies leading us to the Ultron going bad. Like, maybe if... Tony and, and, and Banner had made Ultron. Uh, fun fact, originally it was Ant-Man who created this, by yeah. the way. Um, Hank Pym, yeah. Yeah, but it maybe, you know, if Ultron was online for a while and did, did well for a while and that slow turn happened, we had like a HAL relationship, Ultron could be super, super scary. The choice to cast James Spader, classic villain, slimy voice and sort of physical actor, took all of the scary out of Ultron for me. Because the thing about Ultron, although it is artificial intelligence, there's that robot thing. There's that 2001 HAL is not going to open the pod bay door for you. There's no conversation you can have with him. There's no reasoning you can have with him. You can't appeal to him on an emotional level. You're fucked. If he decides that he wants to kill you, if you're his enemy, you're not talking your way out of the situation. That right. is the essential scary thing about Ultron. Giving him this smarmy, 
quippy personality kind of undercut that. Hmm. And the fact that all of this is Iron Man and the Hulk's fault, and they're not really asked to own it in this movie anyway. Going forward, mm-hmm. they will be, but in this movie, they don't. Kind of reminds me of the debacle in the DC universe, where Superman destroys half a metropolis, and they don't deal with it until the next movie. Right. There's a lot of clumsy mistakes in this movie, and a lot of obvious clumsy mistakes in this movie. And considering the track record of the Marvel Universe and my level of respect for Yas Whedon, I'm shocked. I, 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 I'm flabbergasted and shocked. And I, when I went to revisit it, I thought, well, maybe coming back to it, I will soften. And I have hardened. <laughs> <laughs> it could be Marvel Overdose because I did watch all of these like fairly close together, too. Right. Like I, I've been going back to this again and again on the podcast. Sometimes the circumstances with which you watch the movie affects you. But sitting here right now, I'm telling you, Age of Ultron is one of my least favorite Marvel movies. Convince me I'm wrong. <laughs> well, I can. I suppose I can try. I don't think I'm as low on it as, as you are. Uh, I I do agree that I feel like the first Avengers movie kind of struck a stronger chord than this one did. And I think, and I don't know if this isn't in part why, like if just, you know, if Whedon was off to make other things and that was already kind of predetermined, but I, I do feel like the Russos have proven to be better at juggling this many characters. Like the first Avengers is a multi ensemble show, but it's still just the six core. All of a sudden now we're introducing vision. We're introducing Scarlet, Witch, uh, Quicksilver. Quicksilver. Like there's a whole bunch of more people that we're getting introduced to and quite quickly. And I, and I do know, again, I can't remember if it was on like on an extra or some kind of interview, but it was Whedon that kind of did pitch the idea of like, Hey, we can make, you know, vision and we can introduce him this way and we can use it with the mind stone. And then the thing in his head will be the mind stone. Like, I think maybe they kind of, he knew what he wanted to do to set stuff up for them down the road. And then they kind of tried to find a way to shoehorn it all in. Yeah. And so it feels a bit forced at times. Some of the, some of the story. There's um, a percentage you know, sequences of... are amazing. Like, yeah. those, you know, like it's, it's well made in terms of how it looks. And, you know, you got really great snappy dialogue and some of the things you expect from certain characters, you know, they deliver, um, I, I do like the whole like Hawkeye like I don't know his, his story I, I find more and more interesting as we kind of get more of him so I think that was something I like getting to see him in these Avengers movies since we've never had his own movie yeah so we well, get this, and this that was the thing stuff. that Joss Whedon had to fight for apparently was more Hawkeye and Hawkeye's family and Hawkeye's backstory and I think the idea was we're going to love Hawkeye a little bit and maybe start to worry since we're spending all this time with Hawkeye are they going to kill Hawkeye right um, yeah uh, I, I thought that business was fine for me Hawkeye has the line of the movie in, in a lot of ways when he says um, look we're a bunch of superheroes we're fighting robots I have a bow and arrow bow and arrow yeah none of this makes any this sense, makes sense. That's funny. But this is my job. Yeah. That's funny, but it's also true. And it's also like the movie's calling it on itself in an unselfconscious kind of fun way. But it's actually a fairly accurate indictment of the movie. It knows that it's silly in a way that the other Marvel movies don't quite embrace. Like Guardians of the Galaxy leaned into the silly, but they, they, they still allowed stakes to happen. 
at the end of the movie when all of these people with Quicksilver's getting killed and there's the whole city being lifted up into the air and they're being swarmed by hundreds and hundreds of these robots. I just don't feel anything. Uh, And like the robots don't have any agency or like character to them. So like I don't hate them or and I don't feel for them when they're being destroyed. I'm not scared that they're going to hurt any of our characters. Even Quicksilver, the character who dies, didn't care about him. I don't feel the impact of it. And his character was... He was just introduced. We don't... Yeah. Yeah. And his character was already just handled brilliantly in a different movie. So it was almost like they shouldn't have bothered with that (laughs) at all. Like... Yeah. I don't know. I I usually like James Spader. comparisons too, but having... You know, he, of course, he comes out of it okay, but having Iron Man making what seems to be such a huge sacrifice at the end of the first Avengers movie, it, it, yeah, you're right. It doesn't have that kind of level of sacrifice by one of our major players. Yeah. Um, look, you know, the look, Hulkbuster sequences. Thank you. Know, you. Was, thank you for great. the Hulkbuster fight and that opening yeah. sequence where we did a sort of a revisiting of the long panning shot where we see all the action going from hero to hero to hero was nice to be revisit. It feels like we were starting almost where we ended in the first Avenger films, but instead of bringing the action up and amping it up, I don't know. It, it feels bogged down by the amount of stuff that's going on in it in a way that they haven't uh, struggled with as much in the other Avengers movies Frankly, both of the Captain America sequels are better Avengers movies than this is. And this is an actual Avengers movie. Um, But, like, again, the comedy does work, largely. Like, even when, like, I can sort of see through it, like I talked about the Hawkeye line, I I do appreciate Yoss Whedon's. I love the whole bit at the very beginning of the movie where they're all trying to lift Thor's hammer. That's that's good comedic opportunity and using, like, there's no other context in which we could do that. So... That's a fun little bit, and and there are. It's not awful. Like I'm treating it really severely in my review because I'm comparing it to all of the other Marvel movies. But honestly, front to back, I think it has less issues with it than Dark World does. And I know a right. lot of people would think I'm crazy for saying that. Also, Dark World gets the job done. It's like 103 minutes. This one sprawls out. Two hours and 20. Yeah, it, it, it feels more bloated and sprawled out. And the first Avengers was long too, but it was always moving and it always had a purpose and it always had an energy. And it just, yeah. there there was just something, and, the wheels were spinning here. And the other thing that I kind of felt like a bit, to use that phrase again, being shoehorned in, and that, you know, there's some footage that they didn't use ultimately, but the whole Infinity Stone dream thing where like Thor goes, hey, I need your help and I'm going to go find this pool of water that has connections to all of the realms and I'll climb in it and I'll get some, like, I'm like, wow, that, that felt like a bit of an exposition, you know, MacGuffin is like, here's just some stuff you're going to need going forward. That or or like, here's odd. something for Thor to do. Right. Because a lot of the characters just don't have a lot to do until the robots show up to start fighting. <laughs> I feel like I'm being really mean to Age of Ultron, but like, I, I can't. But you're right, though, in terms of like some of this stuff gets, you know, pay off later too. Like with the whole, the the whole Iron Man, like in the Hulkbuster Hulk fight, gets brought up for Civil War in terms of reasons for the Accords, as does Sokovia. We get introduced to Andy Serkis's character, Claw, and the vibranium, and you know we get these little 
tidbits and you know we're setting up some black panther stuff and even though maybe we don't know it yet and... the william hurt character is going to start taking more of an interest in the avengers going forward because of all of these tragedies that are playing out yeah uh yas whedon kind of lost his relationship with marvel over this well i mean they were there was it was a difficult production i think like they were going to go their separate ways after this movie but it kind of seems like it went from the movie he was desperate to make to the movie he couldn't wait to be finished <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that he jumped ship almost immediately to uh, the DC Universe kind of felt like a little bit of a fuck you. And the crazy thing about the movie he did for them is like, well, he was picking up the pieces after Zack Snyder left, but that movie yeah. doesn't feel like a Zack Snyder movie, and it doesn't feel like a Joss Whedon movie. It, 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 I don't know what the hell happened there. I, I keep on hoping that, you know, Joss Whedon's going to bounce back. Because it feels like the first Avenger put him on the top of the world, and the second Avengers yeah. kind of kicked him off of it. I would like to see, you know, more from from Yas Whedon. I'm, I'm not giving up on the man, um, well, and I yeah, don't think it's all then. his fault. I have the feeling like there was some shit going on behind the scenes that was hobbling this movie a little bit, um, and it certainly didn't hurt its box office. But no, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have the feels for this one. Right. So, well, interesting um, about this, too, you mentioned Natalie Portman earlier. But, like, both Whedon and Natalie Portman were at the premiere. I think definitely Endgame, if not Infinity War and Endgame 2. So, like, you know, they certainly have found ways to, to have them still part of the fold. And maybe that was part of the courting process for Natalie Portman's case, anyways, to be able to do Thor Love and Thunder, which is going to feature her. But I think one of the stories I love about this movie, though, is Paul Bettany, and that he gets hired as a voice actor in the right. first Iron Man movie with no expectations, and nor was it planned out at that point, but all of a sudden now your career is going to get a jump start because now you've, you're going to be made the vision. Well, it's also turned him into a comic book fan because he confessed that he didn't even watch the Iron Man movies. It was very much a job for him. It was like a voice acting job, but they were paying good money. And it, he record voice for two or three days, and then he gets this fat check right on. And then all of a sudden, they start talking to him about, you know, growing the character into this. And he started watching the movies and actually reading the books. And it turns out he was a comic book fan. He just didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I saw him in an interview, and that's why I love this story, is um, at that point, he'd been doing the, the Jarvis voice and hadn't been doing much else at that point and had just come out of some kind of meeting where he had, like, a, a fallout I don't know, couldn't have, if it was an agent that he was leaving, I don't think so. I think he said it was like a producer. And basically the producer gave him one of those speeches, like you're never going to work in this town again kind of speeches where like, you know, your time is closed and whatnot. And like left the building and then all of a sudden his phone rings and it's Joss Whedon. Hey, do you want to play Vision? <laughs> yeah. Like, is there one of those things, like it was like the lowest he had been in his career because he just felt like, okay, that's it. I'm just doing voices now, I guess. To being like resurrected in terms of uh, in terms of big picture movies, it's not an obvious cool. it's not an obvious casting choice. I think it may be just the charm of the voice of Jarvis. Kind of they got hey, well, why don't we use that intelligent and put it into the vision? But like, uh, Bentony is a very versatile, very physical actor, and he's still in a way as Vision that sort of polite, reserved, pithy Jarvis. He's, there's, a, there's a percentage of, of Butler Jeeves into, in him still, yeah, even though absolutely. he's this super being, which is kind of charming. It's kind of an appealing aspect of his character. He always wants to be helping out. Um, but again, you wouldn't necessarily think Paul Bettany, but 
Paul Bettany 100% works, which means to me yeah. that he's a good actor. I, um, individual performances are fine. Like, again, and the special effects are, are, are bloody amazing. But you could watch it with the sound off and be, you know, more or less dazzled by it. But it's not <laughs> as smart and it's not as forward thinking as a lot of the Marvel movies are. And it's funny because you get the feeling like it really does think that it's smart and forward thinking like the rest of the Marvel movies. But it just got blown off the screen by the two previous entries. It probably looks worse because it comes off the back of Guardians and Winter Soldier, but it ain't great. Yeah. And, you know, we haven't talked about it, not that we need to delve into it, too, but it really was a way for them to write Hulk out of the story until they needed him again, too. That's right. The, yeah. the, the rights issue. They can do supporting role Hulk, but they can't have a standalone Hulk for whatever reason. Yeah, unless they play nice with Universal. If Universal doesn't want to play ball, then there's no movie. Oh. Alas. Um, I don't think I've run out of things to say about Avengers. I think I just get mean again. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps we should move on to Ant-Man then. Good deal. Imagine a soldier the size of an insect. The ultimate secret weapon. If you give godlike powers to everyone, it's going to be chaos. So how do we stop him? I know a guy. Scott, I've been watching you for a while. You're different. And I believe everyone deserves a shot at redemption. Do you? Absolutely. My days of breaking into places and stealing stuff are over. What do you want me to do? I want you to break into a place and steal some stuff. Makes sense. Are you ready to become a hero? Now, the suit has power. You have to learn how to control it. And these are your greatest allies. You're kind of cute. Whoa. When you're small, you have superhuman strength. You like a bullet. So you need to know how to punch. You want to show me how to punch? Show me how to punch. That's how you punch. So much like we talked about the Thor learning that Thor's maybe better at being light than dark. I yeah. think maybe Marvel learned after Ultron that it's better at being light than dark, especially coming off of the warmth that was Guardians of the Galaxy to this apocalyptic mess that was Ultron. Let's 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 change things up significantly. Let's yeah. do something that is tonally just a comedy, which I think in a lot of ways, Ant-Man, you could argue, is as straight a comedy as we've seen from the Marvel Universe. I, I would absolutely and let's yeah. tear the action down so that instead of it being the stakes being the end of the world it's a battle over some new tech it's a battle over some new tech and it's a guy who wants to get out of all of these troubles so he can hang out with his estranged daughter and we're just gonna we're gonna make this movie as charming and as self-contained and as uh, like uh it's like a one-off issue you know, instead of having this great overarching epic thing that they're going to try and squish into one movie, they're going to give you a one-off. And within that one-off, they're going to show you the origin of this nouveau version of Ant-Man. It's not the original Ant-Man. They've created a new version of Ant-Man, but he respects all the rules and the world of the original Ant-Man. 
But basically, Paul Rudd, the ever charming Paul Rudd, <laughs> through uh, a, a convoluted sort of narrative, ends up stealing this suit from Michael Douglas's character, which gives him the ability to change his size. And yes, that changes his life. Um, Michael Douglas is really worried because he has an, a rival in his business played by the really solid actor, Corey Stoll. Really like that guy. Um, yeah. Who's about to crack this technology that Michael Douglas has basically spent his life trying to keep under wraps. He likes this Paul Rudd character, sees something in him and thinks that maybe he can use the suit to get rid of this new tech before it becomes a real problem on the world. That story works. The mentor story between Michael Douglas and Paul Rudd works. The relationship between Paul Rudd and his daughter works. And the overarching adventure versus Corey Stoll where maybe works the least of those three things, but works enough that I'm all smiles. If this was right. the apology for Age of Ultron, apology accepted. <laughs> <laughs> I like how much that's I laughed why, during the, I, I like how much I laughed. making this movie before Ultron had hit the screens, right? So you're like, again, it's like, is that delayed thing? But they, I think you're right. I think they're probably on to something in terms of... In terms of but then I look at who's writing it, too. Like, you know, they still gave Edgar Wright a partial credit. writing credit. Yeah. But then it's... You know, Paul Rudd was a co-writer with Adam Kay. <laughs> like, you know, who, who, like, as stupid as they are, like, I love me some Anchorman. Give right. me some Adam McKay and Paul Rudd. And, yeah. Oh, and you would think that, uh-oh, you're going to go too far with it. But they don't go too far with it. They go pretty far with it. I think the closest thing, uh, that Michael Pena character, yeah. his monologue, which is amusing, that might be the thing that pushes it maybe just a little bit too far into broad comedy. But, but he's so but, he's so likable. I would argue not, because obviously it was popular enough that they do it again. Right. Not to jump too far ahead, they use that 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 storytelling device, that framing device, again in the sequel. I think it's yeah. all a matter of performance. I think if you had the wrong guy doing that, that it would yeah. not have worked. That 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 actor made it made it work. Um, it's another one of those movies where it's full of familiar elements, uh, down to his sort of team that helps him pull off the heist and the mentor well, relationship with with Michael Douglas. I mean, it's a movie built out of pieces that we've seen from other movies and comic books. So well, I, you said the word right there, like we talk about, you know, Winter Soldier being a spy or an espionage type. So this is a heist movie. Yeah. You use the, use the H word, and like, that's exactly it. If you look at it through that lens, it's like, yeah, it totally does what it's supposed to do. The other big compliment I'll pay it is the thing that I was worried about, the thing that I didn't think would work, that I thought would be too silly, the whole idea of him being able to manipulate the ants. Right. Ended up working really well for me. In fact, my, I keep on talking about Tristan. My, my son's favorite thing in this whole movie is the pet ant. The idea of that giant ant that they ended up keeping around the house right. for some reason. He thought that was hilarious. <laughs> but it, it's one of the more stranger comic book things that he can, uh, you know, control an army of ants. And how can you possibly use that to your advantage? Oops. Well, how can you possibly use these ants to your advantage? And to the movie's credit... They find ways. <laughs> they find ways. Yeah. Well, and similar to Guardians of the Galaxy, like outside, like even someone who did, you know, collect comics in kind of the nineties, you know, Ant Man was not one that was on my list. Like, you know, I knew it was out there, but it was not high. So, it's it has a, a certain uh, advantage, like Guardians did, in that the the larger movie going population is not going to have any expectations to to set against. Like, I guess at that point, it's like okay. 
or 12 movies in is Marvel. So like there's probably an expectation in terms of them wanting it to be good, but they won't know what the story is or what it's based on, which, you know, I think is good. It's really good. Well, it benefits because I think few, most people are like us who are less familiar with the, the comic book character, although it's sold enough that it's been an entity in the world, I think, since the 60s. Ant-Man goes back. Ant-Man was one of the original Avengers, Avengers. Ant-Man and Wasp. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think the movie going public, this was relatively new, so I think that we went in more forgiving of some of the elements that were familiar. I think the only thing in the movie that was just there to set up future movies... Well, the origin of, of Hank Pym's missing wife and, and Evangeline's Lily character pretty much entirely. We're going to get to the Wasp, but this movie's not about the Wasp. This movie's yeah. about Ant-Man. So there she is, but she's kind of waiting in the wings, largely, <laughs> in this movie. But it, it doesn't spend a lot of time on it, and she still has her own sort of beats and a few good lines and things to do in the movie. Yeah. And, and, and the mo- I like the energy of it. I like Corey Stoll too. They have a really great, uh, you know, evil villain moment. Like you talk about when they, they kill a guy to show them that they're bad. When he shrinks this rival in the bathroom and he shrinks him down to this tiny little spot on the floor and then wipes yeah. him up with a piece of Kleenex and flushes him. Like, hey, that's like a completely, you got away with that murder. No one's ever going to be able to convict you for that murder. But it, it's a strangely, incredibly violent, not violent scene. Yeah. Like you yeah. can watch that with your kids and your kids won't be traumatized by it, but like the idea of it is is really awful. And who knows like did he just turn him into goo or was he just shrunk micro small? Like what was his experience yeah. of being wiped up and flushed down the toilet? Was he dead already? Was he still in some sort of tiny macro form? <laughs> I think we can say he's dead cuz yeah. my ticket yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I love that there's a huge climactic battle that takes place on top of a kid's play train set and that they play that yeah. for all of the mock stakes of that. Well, and just keeping it like from their perspective, but then taking the shot outside and just like, yeah. <laughs> letting us, like, oh. just like toys falling off and like, this epic battle is happening inside it. And that's sort of, a, again, a microcosm of the whole movie. Like, really, compared to some of the stories that have been told in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, this is a really small story. <laughs> but it yeah. feels epic because of, you know, how it's told in the scale. Well, and, the and, and they're West Coast, too, right? Like, I, I can't, I don't know that if it's in the comics that way, too, that, you know, but there's San Francisco in this, which is a you know, very kind of tech center of the world, of course. So it makes sense. Too, but there's something about them being West Coast and you know Avengers being kind of New York and and eventually you know they move their facility and whatnot. But there's something about that distance that does kind of help believe that they're a bit on the peripheral, if you will. Yeah, I love the family dynamic in the movie too. Nobody is asked to play the specific Hollywood role. The ex-wife is bitchy, but she's not a bitch. <laughs> and uh, yeah. the 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 Bobby Cannavale character, the the stepfather to his daughter. Yeah, uh, he's kind of a he. Uh, he's sort of an adversary, but he's not an asshole. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like yeah. And by the end of the movie, they're all on the same yeah. team, which is kind of like yeah, you're rooting for everybody. Which and is... the movie just refuses to pigeonhole them in the character of bitchy ex-wife or shitty stepfather. Nope. Nope, they have reasons to be suspicious of Paul Red's character, yeah. and yeah. they are protective of their daughter, and that's that's 
that's okay. <laughs> um, yeah. And again, that's not like, kind the of... One thing that, I was going to say, the one thing that feels a bit shoehorned, but although I know why it's there, you get the sequence where they need to get into the Avengers, well, they think it's just a warehouse and ends up being the Avengers facility, so we get this little interaction with, with Falcon, so it's a way <laughs> yeah. to, to make that introduction happen. It's a good, fun sequence, but actually, it's you know, it's as you say, it's laying the track for... Ant-Man showing up in Civil War more than anything else. I like that Falcon um, feels insecure about being beaten up by a little dude. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I think we all understand. Right? Yeah, no. But again, that's something that would happen in the comic book too, right? I can see the cover of that comic book. Ant-Man and Falcon are fighting for some reason. Why? Read the book to find out why. <laughs> yeah, why are our two heroes fighting each other? Yeah. Um, absolutely right. It's it's one of those things. It's a slippery slope. You can really overpour on the comedy sometimes, and I think this is what the move maybe came closest to. But I don't mind that this is a straight up comedy. Like I I kind of like that. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy did that too. You still felt the stakes. You were still able to feel like, oh, well, how's this all going to work out? I, I didn't think Ant Man was going to die or anything like that. But the comedy didn't undercut any of the quote reality if we can talk about reality yeah in, the in terms of those stakes too like what you know him going you know to the quantum realm was a great sequence too like it really felt like that was the beginning like oh it seemed to give ideas of what they could do visually once they get to dr strange like i i really love that whole sequence of him going subatomic yeah. A, from a story standpoint, because, again, it's him making the sacrifice in terms of, well, I don't think I'm going to come back from this, but i got to do it if I'm going to stop this guy. Are you familiar with The Incredible Thinking Man by Richard Matheson? No. There's a, it's just an interesting concept. Like, in that one, it's much more of a horror construct. This guy gets right. rained on by this weird oily substance while he's out on his boat one day and just starts shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, and he never stops. And in the context of the story, he never stops. He just keeps getting smaller and smaller. But there is no point that's so small that he pops out of existence. The world changes. There's other universes, basically, to explore. But you can always get smaller. You can always get bigger. There is no absolute tiny, and there's no absolute big. And that's a philosophical sort of yeah. abstract concept. That That's weirdly terrifying to think is there a spectrum and if it is where on the spectrum are we are we big are we small is there such thing as big and small like this is an entire world that is being kicked down and that can be explored and used and will be used going forward um mm. it doesn't seem like it's as big as world as outer space or as the supernatural but it is yeah. it, it really is and it also gets into that whole like uh inception idea of how time travels once you start going down into these macro levels like you start experiencing time differently than other people as well so there's there's yeah. all sorts of strange depth to this goofy funny comedy <laughs> yeah and we hadn't actually mentioned it too like Peyton Reed was the director on it like I think you know obviously he struck the tone that they wanted and that they got him to come back for Ant-Man and Wasp and I know he's I don't know if it's going to ha happen or not but there's always I think well there is talk of a, a third Ant-Man probably happening in like Phase Five, but he's also being linked to f possible Fantastic Four stuff. So obviously he's playing well enough with others that they're going to keep him around. They're trying to find a way to keep him in the family, so to speak. Yeah, 
And I don't mean that like all Ant-Man movies need to be this way, but this was kind of a refreshing palate cleanser after Age of Ultron. And it's just like, okay, we're going to have fun and just let's have fun. <laughs> no, that's okay. We're allowed to just play for this movie. We're going to introduce you to this fun character. He's going to have more to do later on. But everybody yeah. smile and eat your popcorn. Marvel Cinematic Universe shall chug on. <laughs> And for that, I am grateful to it. It's not maybe top-tier Marvel, but it's solid as a rock to me. Yeah, I agree. Good enough? Good enough. It's nice to be able to distract myself from all the craziness and just talk about some pure fantasy escapism. Thanks for being there for me, Sky. Oh, my pleasure. My part is like, I kept thinking, well, I have to rush to them trying to catch, you know, Black Widow of being six. But now it's been pushed to November, so we got plenty we of got time. We got time. We got time. What was your least favorite of this group of six Marvel Cinematic Universe films and why? Okay, phase two, my number six was Iron Man 3. Okay. Um, I, I didn't dislike it, as we talked about, too. It just kind of felt like, um, yeah, it just wasn't as as, as strong as some of the others. I, I talked about maybe putting Thor Dark World here, too, but I think because Thor Dark World had such low expectations, and then when I finally saw it, I'm like, I just liked it so much. I'm like, no, I can't put it at the bottom of this list. So Iron Man 3 was there. I just kind of felt like some of the Tony Stark story stuff had been done and that we were kind of revisiting some stuff, and I just didn't buy Guy Pierce as, as the bad guy at the end. I just kind of took it into a realm where... I agree. Yeah. It's just sucks. not as strong as the others. It sucks to talk shit about Guy Pierce because I legit love Guy Pierce, but I kind of agree. He didn't do it for me in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. So then I put Thor Dark World as five. Um, for some of the same reasons, right? We were talking about, like, didn't we, like, Thor and Odin kind of had this conversation before? And now they seem to have switched places. And so why wouldn't Odin be able to kind of recognize that maybe he's kind of wrong on this one because he was having the other side of this conversation in the last movie? <laughs> Um, but still dug lots. Then this was my tough one here. I uh, was Ant-Man and Avengers Age of Ultron. Okay. And ultimately, I still put Ant-Man at four and Avengers at three because I think just the big picture ensemble epic nature of Avengers still put it ahead of Ant-Man for me. Ant-Man always struck me as being an odd movie to end phase two. Right. It seems on, like a start point like more than an end point. should be working towards the Avenger movie and not trying to put in a tent. But I don't know. Like those movies, there's, there's, they've got their own tone. And although all the Marvel movies tend to have more humor than, say, the DC offerings you know, of late, it still was even funnier than the rest. So I think that's why it certainly scored higher than Thor and Iron Man in this yeah. list. Uh, you would think maybe Avengers would be higher, but I just don't think 
Whedon stuck the landing like he did on the first one, which left uh, Winter Soldier and Guardians 1 and 2 for me. And uh, I went Guardians at 2 and Captain America Winter Soldier at 1, mainly because I just feel like everything shifted when it came to Winter Soldier. Like the expectations of the whole studio went up and they really changed the game in terms of that character specifically, but of the universe as well. Sorry, so your is Iron Man 3, yep. Thor 2, Ant-Man, yep. Avengers, yep. Winter Soldier, nope, Guardians, sorry, Guardians and then Winter Soldiers. Winter Soldier at 1, yep. I think we might have gone 0 for 6 here. <laughs> I think we might have actually not matched at all. Let me, let me, let me go through it here. I am controversially, I guess, going to put Age of Ultron in last place. I think the fall of quality between the first Avengers movie and the second Avengers movie is as big a fall as we've seen in between any two sequels in the Marvel Cinematic Universe so far. Right. Probably in part because Avengers 1 is so high. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, yeah. it, it's yeah. it's competing yeah. with other... And I, I lay that caveat out. But I, I was really disappointed by it the first time I watched it. And the second time I watched it, maybe as residual bad taste in my mouth or maybe because I was watching so many Marvels movies all at once it was the more of the negatives that stood out to me than the positives yeah. and it felt the length more than any of these movies that we watched this felt like a long movie and yeah. that's one thing especially in a marvel movie if it feels long something's probably wrong yeah so yeah all the way in last place that's where i'm putting avengers uh sorry <laughs> so i guess no we apologize to me this is, I guess, no, we don't go zero for six because Thor Dark World, I put in fifth place and you also put that in fifth place. So we did, I did yeah. we did mark there. Again, I think it gets a bad rap. I get the complaints about it, but I think there's enough fun in the movie and enough stuff that happens that is actually relevant, relevant going forward. Um, it's good. I just think that we're going to, we're no, this is not the Winter Soldier of this particular series of movies. They don't get yeah. that till Ragnarok where they really absolutely hit Thor completely 100% out of the park for me. Yeah. But I do think be nicer to Dark World. So generally speaking, fans out there, be nicer to the Dark World than you have been. Iron Man 3 made it all the way to fourth place for me. I'm, I do like the writer-director. That might have helped me into it. And I agree that maybe his aesthetic it fits better in a more noir y, sleazy, R rated world than it does in the PG one. But yeah. that's not the problem with the movie. The problem is what exactly what you said when you pointed it out is that it's a rehash. It's basically a do over of Iron Man's origin. Uh, it's interesting to see that he's changed, that he needs to have this sort of character rebirth, but it's not as satisfying because we have kind of been here before. Seen it. But. Isolated, I think for the most part, it does work more than it doesn't. Third place is Ant-Man. Very charming, very funny. Uh, like I said, the great palate cleanser after... If I was worried, oh, is, is Marvel Universe going to get shaky? All of a sudden, they bounced back like immediately with Ant-Man for me. And I always, forg <laughs> always forgiven. Top two were super, super tough. But I ended up going with Winter Soldier at number two and Guardians at number one. And they're so close, Sky, that I based that decision basically on... <laughs> I'm imagining, if I look back on my life, which of those two movies will I have probably watched more? 
And yeah. my guess is it will be Guardians of the Galaxy just for the, 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 the fun and the energy of the movie. And it's kid-friendly. I can watch it with my mom. I can watch it with my kids. I can like it. it, it it's a great entry point. You can enjoy this movie and not have seen any other Marvel movies. But yes. in me putting Guardians of the Galaxy at number one, let me not take anything away from the accomplishment of Winter Soldier. In a lot of ways, the Winter Soldier is a greater accomplishment for me personally and what it did for the Captain America character and how much they, they upped the game for Captain America as an entity and in this whole movie franchise. All of a sudden, like, that arc, that character's arc, is one of the most important and interesting things in... I, I mean, it's a close second to Tony for me, as far yeah. as, like, the overarching stories going through it all, is, is Captain America. And it was this movie that made that possible for me. So it's a number two, but it's just a... It, that was a heartbreaker. <laughs> it was a heartbreaker. <laughs> so... Well, really, like, apart from being drastically different... On Avengers. On, on Avengers, the other ones are all kind of within one, like, in terms of, you know, that's the big wrench. I think it speaks well for the movies. I recently did an episode on the Coen Brothers, and we were talking about how whenever you rank the Coen Brothers or you read ranks about Coen Brothers movies online, they're always different. Everybody loves the Coen Brothers, but everybody's top five Coen Brothers movies are different. Are different. And yeah. to me, that just says... They're amazing filmmakers, right? Like, everyone has their different favorites. Yeah. Right? There's not that one that was, well, that was it, and then everything else is pale in comparison. And I think that, that Marvel could be getting there, you know, with their their cinematic universe, too. That they're well, all part good of that, enough. too, is just quantity, right? Like, yeah. There's so many out there now, too. But And in such a short period of time, like, really, Iron Man wasn't that long ago. And we're like 24, yeah, 23 mm -hmm. movies in now. Yeah. Like, the, how long did it take Bond to get to 25? The first Bond movie was, what, 63? Yeah. Something yeah. like that? <laughs> like, they're just tearing it up. I don't know how long it can last, but um, into, unless they drop the ball utterly, I'm 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 pretty loyal. I'm on board. Yeah, well, there's something to be, and I think it happens maybe now because of Netflix and that people can kind of get their long-form story content in a way that isn't like having to wait every week right and then having to wait months for it to come back in another season like there's a little bit of having to wait until you know a full season drops but there is something about people seem to be a bit more willing to invest in long-term storytelling so i think they're yeah they're gonna especially with disney plus now where they can like set up stuff and fill out some side stories that maybe they don't want to put in a full movie it's going to be really interesting to see where this all goes. We were predated slightly, you and I, in our existence by sort of the age of Westerns, where Westerns went through a period of uncommon popularity. Every, like They were just bankable, and they were around for a really long time, and they weren't. And this might just be the age of the superhero movie. We'll get like 30 yeah. or 40 years where like they're just ubiquitous. There's always going to be another superhero movie. And some will be great, and some will be hits, and some will be misses, but they're just going to be around. It'll be interesting to see when and if that bubble bursts, but... Um, we still yeah. have at least two more Marvel episodes to talk about, <laughs> so uh, we, we got homework to do, son. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I guess the uh, Scarlett Johansson movie is in the bag, so we have four episodes fully that yep. we'll be able to do once that's released. Um, 
and going forward, we'll see. I don't know in the age of the plague if production is going to slow down or speed up going forward. Well, but. yeah, it's a, it sounds like Marvel's plan, anyways, is just they've pushed everything back one slot. So right. Eternals was supposed to be where Black Widow is going to be. So they've moved it back, and then where Shang-Chi, that was where Shang-Chi, so everything just goes back one spot. Right. So, but, who knows, it might change how we do business, right? So, well, hang in there. Uh, it's great. Too, to, my it's great to talk to you, and um, uh, I will start watching some more Marvel. I will not make you. I'm wait. already halfway through the next six, so, so you gotta catch up. I will try not to make you wait as long. The good news, if you can call it good news, is that I got some time on my hands. <laughs> same, same here. All right. Until next, we speak, brother. And so ends volume two of our exploration of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. How did we do? Did Sky and I give fair shakes to all of these Marvel movies? Were we too kind? Were we too unkind? You can send your feedback to rankingreview at gmail.com. You can always check out the podcast at rankingreview.ca. And you know, you're good enough to spread the word about the show with your other movie friends and Maybe leave a positive review on iTunes or whatever podcast service you're using to listen to the show. That would just be doing me such a favor. We will have another episode dedicated to Marvel and rank and review, rank and review future. But until then, I hope you continue listening. And big thanks to all you people out there.